Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. We'll be looking at those 20 verses in Genesis chapter 23. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would encourage and build up your people and that you would draw all people to yourself as you have promised to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Your life is a mist. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's short. We don't like typically to talk about death in our culture, so we use words uh, like passed away uh, at funerals. We don't like to think about that time which is coming to every single one of us. And yet, our text this morning presents us with the stark realities of death but even more so, the amazing realities of the promises of God. So follow along as I read Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead And said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. In this passage, the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife, 
is reported. And for Abraham, this is a time of great mourning and sorrow. He recognizes that though God has made amazing promises of descendants and of land, they still suffer the penalty of sin. They still suffer death. But it's also a time of hope because Abraham recognizes that the promises of God are not impeded even by death. So in faith, he bargains in order to secure a burial place for his wife. And in so doing, he gains possession of the future burial place for the patriarchs and the first piece of land which was promised to him. So I think the main point of this passage is summarized by this truth. Even death cannot annul the promises of God. And this truth has implications. While we live, we must live and act by faith, anticipating the future fulfillment of the promises of God. And when it comes to dying, we must die in faith, patiently waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of those promises. So that's how we'll approach this text this morning. Main point, and then those two implications following from this main point. These two implications in Abraham's life of his faith and actions. So even death, this idea, even death cannot impede or annul the promises of God. So in chapter 23, we are moving into transitional chapters between the life of Abraham and Sarah to the life of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. We'll get there eventually after chapter 25. Sarah has lived 127 years, Abraham 137 years, Isaac would be about 37 years old. 37 years have passed since this laughter entered into her life. Perhaps as many as 20 to 25 years had passed since Abraham had willingly gone to the place where God had told him to offer up his son. Now for us, the readers, the story is condensed. The death of Sarah follows the climactic events of Abraham offering up Isaac. God provides. The reader of this story is coming off of this amazing event, amazing act of faith on Abraham's part. And then Sarah all of a sudden dies. It's a stark reminder for us, the readers, that all is not right with the world. It's like the genealogies that we've read throughout Genesis. So-and-so lived this many years and then died. This person lived for this long and then died. Sarah lived to a good old age and then she died. She died in the land of Canaan and Abraham mourned and wept over her. There are many well-meaning pastors and churches in our day who want to take away the sadness in funerals. They want to put the fun in funeral. And so we make it a celebration of life, which... For the Christian, it it is a sort of celebration, but there also is great mourning in funerals, in death. To make a funeral simply into a celebration fails to understand what a funeral really is. It fails to understand what death really is. Abraham mourns over his wife. The words there refer to both the ritual mourning over losing someone, but also of a genuine sorrow at losing the one that you love. He wept over her. Can you imagine spending a hundred years together 
and then losing your loved one. They've been through these years together. And he's mourning her with real sorrow and pain. Death is a time of mourning, one, because we are separated from those that we love. But it's also a time of deep sorrow and mourning because it reminds us why death exists in the first place. Death exists because of sin. Death is the curse of sin. Death is a reminder of our rebellion against God. It reminds us of the just punishment for sin which we all deserve. And it reminds us of the consequence we will all face one day. This is the reality of death. Every one of us will one day die. And there is great perspective in thinking about our deaths. There is great value in thinking about our deaths. Now, I don't think we should become overly morbid about thinking about death, but we shouldn't avoid it either. Think about the value of considering the the shortness of our lives here on earth. We are caused to reflect upon what are we giving our lives for? What are we wasting our lives for? It calls us to reflect on our relationships. It calls us to consider the question, what happens after death? Is this all there is? If this is all there is, if this is all there is, then there is mourning without hope. You better use every ounce of your life to get all the pleasure and satisfaction you can in this life because then there's nothing else. But if there's more, we want to know what that is. I think something inside of every one of us tells us that there's something more. Even those who don't trust in Christ, those who don't believe in God, there's something inside of us that tells us there's something after this life. And the Bible tells us what's next, heaven and hell. Eternal life or eternal death. And for those who trust in the promises of God, there's hope. Because even death, as bad as it is, as final as it seems, even death can't stop God's promises. Abraham realized this. He realized that God's promises were still in effect even though Sarah died. And as he contemplated his own death, he he knew that those promises would continue going. And that's why he does what he does. He's acting in faith. We'll look at that more in the next point. But for now, let's focus on this idea that even death doesn't threaten to undo the promises of God. Death seems to be the end of everything. It seems to be final. So we strive to accumulate possessions in this life, to get as much pleasure. Functionally, even we who trust in Christ, we live in many ways Like this is all that there is. However, if your ultimate hope, if your ultimate treasure is centered in on something or someone in this life, then when you come to your end, you'll be absolutely devastated because what you treasured will be taken away from you. You'll lose it. But if your ultimate hope is in another world, in another person, in Christ, in his kingdom, then we can rejoice because not even death can keep us from receiving all the promises of God in Christ. And when you understand this, then it changes how you live. It changes your actions here in this life and it changes how you face death as well. These are the implications to understanding and believing that even death can't stop the promises of God. It changes how you live now. 
and it changes how you face death. So implication one is since even death cannot annul the promises of God, we must act in faith, anticipating their future fulfillment. So for Abraham, this means purchasing a piece of property for his wife's burial. So his concern is both immediate and also future-oriented. It's immediate in that he needs his, a burial place for his wife. But it's also Abraham looking into the future because he's concerned about his children and his children's children and their relationship to the promised land. What will become of this promise that God has made of the land? If Sarah dies, if I die, This bargaining and purchase of the property is more than just fulfilling the need for a burial place. Abraham is acting in faith in accordance with the promises of God about the land. He's bringing his actions into alignment with the promise of God. So in verses 3 through 9, we see Abraham approaching the Hittites and asking them for the property. They respond almost with flattery. You are a prince of God among us. You can have any tomb you want. None of us would keep it from you. Take your pick. See, Abraham wants more than just a tomb. He wants more than just a burial place for Sarah. He wants to buy property. He wants to buy a tomb. So he bows before them in in deference, despite their high view of him. And he asks them to entreat Ephron for a piece of property that he owns. I'll buy it for the full price, Abraham says. And at this point in the story, Ephron himself enters into the picture. He, like the other Hittites, offers to give the property to Abraham. You see that word over and over. We'll give it to you. We'll give you what you need. Three times in verse 11, Ephron says that. I will give it to you. But Abraham doesn't want anything given to him. He wants to purchase it. Now, why would he want to purchase it? Why doesn't he just take what's given to him? You know what we would do, right? We love free stuff. We love cheap stuff. We love deals. You're going to give it to me? Sure, I'll take it. It'll be great. But Abraham knows that what he's doing, he has something greater, something more important in mind. Part of it's similar to chapter 14 when he's talking with the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom offers Abraham the spoils of war. But Abraham says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich. Abraham wants to buy the property, lest anyone should say that it was a gift or that he was indebted to anyone else. But there's even more than than this. What would happen if Abraham received the gift of the cave at Machpelah and was buried there, his wife was buried there, and then... Someone came back to claim the land. Ephron came back to claim the land. Who would be there to stop him? It was given to him. It can be taken away from him. Abraham wants to buy the property to bury Sarah as a permanent burial place for his family. And in this way, he would anchor his descendants to this land, to this land that had been promised to him by God. We know this somewhat from our own experience. Um, generally, we want to be buried somewhere that has importance for us. Maybe our, our family is buried in a certain cemetery and we would like to be there with them. Maybe it's our hometown. 
Uh, we, we want to be buried next to our spouse. And we feel anchored to the place in which our family is buried in some sense. But even, even more so with Abraham and his family. People would go to great lengths to bury their loved ones in their home pl- land or with their family and be gathered with their family. Even if it meant transporting a body or bones hundreds of miles. Abraham knows this. And once he purchases this land, his descendants will be linked to the promised land forever. One commentator says, In this small purchase was embodied the hope in God's promise that one day in the near future, it would all belong to him and to his seed. So Abraham finally gets Ephron to name his price. You'll note the the flattery and the nonchalance of all the parties involved in this deal. It was typical of ancient Near East bargaining. 400 shekels. It seems like an exorbitant price. It may be that Ephron is starting out the bidding process high, thinking, well, Abraham's going to bid lowball me, so I need to start out high so that we come out to a, a number closer together. But Abraham doesn't. He, he doesn't want anyone coming back saying they have a rightful claim to this land. He wants to pay what it's worth so that everyone around, all those members of the community, all those people of the land would know that this belongs to Abraham. So he weighs out the silver and buys the land. Notice it was in the hearing of the Hittites. This whole deal was done legally above board with witnesses. The author wants us to notice that. He notes the presence or the hearing of the Hittites nine times. He's emphasizing the legal nature of this purchase. But don't miss the broader nature of the point here. Abraham's faith in the promise moves and empowers him to act in accordance with the truths of the promise. He believes God's promise is greater than the power of death, and so he acts. Now, he doesn't say, I know that God is sovereign, and he has promised that he's going to give me this land, so that's that. There's nothing I I, I need to do here. God's going to give me the land. There's, What do I have to do? No, he believes God's promise and then acts in accordance with it. He brings his actions into alignment with the promises because he knows that God uses means to fulfill his promises. So let's bring that to our situation now. Like Abraham, we have been made promises in the word of God. We've been made promises by God. We know that we will probably die without seeing those promises fulfilled in our lifetimes. And yet we know they will be fulfilled. And so this moves us to bring our actions into alignment with those promises. God has promised to save his elect. He has promised to save his people to rescue them from sin and eternal destruction. So in Romans eight twenty nine and 30, we read, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that's that then, right? Nothing we need to do. God will save his people. But of course, God works through means. He will save his elect by the means of the proclamation of the gospel. 
The gospel that Christ lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead in victory. And he will save them through the means of repentance and faith. He will save you if you come to him, repenting of your sin and clinging to Christ in faith. But rather than becoming passive, we must bring our actions into alignment with the promises of God. God has promised to sanctify his people. Not only has he saved us by his grace, he is working in us to bring our lives into conformity with Christ. It's a gradual process, but Surely enough, God is growing us in our sanctification. Does that mean we have nothing to do? Does that mean we don't strive to fight against sin? Strive for faith and righteousness in this life? Absolutely not. God uses means to grow us. That's, I pray, why you come here week after week. To hear the Word of God proclaimed. To hear Christ and all His benefits proclaimed to come together to receive the Lord's Supper. These are His means of grace to us. You are warned to flee from sin. You are exhorted to fight against sin and to believe the gospel. You are assured of this, that in Christ, all of your sins have been paid for in full and you are perfectly accepted by God because of Christ. God has promised to meet all our needs. That we don't need to worry about tomorrow or what we will eat or what we will wear. He will provide for us. And by faith, we bring our actions into alignment with the truth of that promise. We don't become passive. Rather, we work all the more knowing the time is short. We know the brevity of life. There's not much time in this life. So we ought to use it wisely for the glory of God. So think about your own death the shortness of this life, and consider, what things are you wasting your life on? What sin are you wasting your time on? What bitterness? What unforgiveness? What licentiousness? What slothfulness are you wasting your time on? This life is short. Why would you use all your time on this earth striving after these things? And consider what does the brevity of life mean for our witness to Christ? Will not all those who do not trust in Christ die and enter into everlasting punishment? There comes a point in which urgency overrules our desire to be liked. Now, I'm not saying we should be bullies, we ought to be winsome in our witness. But we also ought to be characterized by an urgency because the time is short. We only have a certain amount of hours in every day, a certain amount of days in every year, and a certain amount of years in our lives. Implication number two. Not only must we live by faith, being changed in our actions, bringing our actions into alignment with the promises of God, we must die in faith, waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of God. Our text concludes with the summary of this legal transaction between Abraham and Ephron. He purchases the cave and the field from Ephron, and it became the burial place for Sarah and their descendants. Sarah dies, and he buries her. 
But in the next couple of chapters, we will encounter another death. In chapter 25, we read, These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Surely in grieving the loss of Sarah, Abraham considered his own death would not be long in coming. He lived 30, just short of 30 more years. And then he too, the father of many nations, the father of our faith in many ways, dies. Sarah sees only a tiny fraction of the promises fulfilled. A son, but far short of the, the numerous uh, descendants numbering the stars in the sky. And Abraham wouldn't see much more than that. He would see other children, but he would send them all the way to the east while he gave the inheritance to his son Isaac. He would only see a little bit of land, a burial place in a field. Lindsay read the passage of Scripture from the Hebrews, which speaking of Abraham and Sarah and others who died in faith, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they are, not, they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. It is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They could face death in faith because they knew that even death couldn't stop the promises of God. All along, In the book of Genesis, we've been seeing this theme repeated over and over. Because God is faithful, we can live by faith. But here there's another truth. Because God is faithful, we can die in faith. Think of all the saints throughout history who have seen the promises from afar and not gotten to receive them fully in their lifetimes. Abraham and Sarah. The Israelites entering the promised land. The ancient kings who saw the kingdom of God established here on earth. The prophets who saw the destruction of the kingdom and yet were told of a day of restoration to come. Now if these all lived by faith and died in faith, how much more ought we to live by faith and die in faith? Having a a greater and fuller revelation of the promises of God in Christ. Having seen so much more than the Old Testament saints. Having been a pastor for the last 10 years or so, I've seen many people on their deathbeds. I've seen that some are ready to die. I've seen others who are frightened to their very core. Some have been strong because they were assured of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Others have wanted me to reassure them that they were good enough for heaven. In each and every case, I would do my best to point them away from themselves to Christ. Away from themselves to Christ who died for sinners. The only way to die in faith 
is to look outward to Christ who died and rose from the dead for us. The reason we can face death in faith is because Christ faced death in faithfulness. He was faithful. Not running away in fear, not escaping at the last moment, not calling down an army of angels to rescue him and defeat his enemies. He let them crucify him. He faced death because he knew it was the only way to rescue us from death. To take away the sting of death. And he rose from the dead proving that the power of God's promises are greater than even death. And if you come to him in faith, you will experience the resurrection power like that. You will be raised from the dead. And one day, Abraham and Sarah and all the saints of God will leap from their tombs with joy because even death cannot stop the promises of God. I remember a woman, she sticks in my mind, and she will for the rest of my life, named Edna Booth. She lived, I knew her when she was older in life, uh, in her 80s, maybe even in her 90s, I can't remember. Rachel and I spent time with her before she died. I remember Rachel going to her house one time. She told me this story. And Miss Edna came to the door with tears flowing down her cheeks. And Rachel was like, what is wrong? Why are you crying? And she said, I was just praying. I was just, I was just spending time praying. And she was overwhelmed with the joy in Christ. She knew this truth. She believed it, it seemed, with all her She knew that the promises of God were more powerful than even death. And it changed the way that she lived. Even in her old age, she was ready and eager to serve. She prayed like nobody else I've ever known. She loved to hear the word and tell others about Christ. Even when she was in the nursing home before she died, she was giving witness to Christ, to all the nurses, to anyone who came into her room. She would tell them about Jesus. It changed the way she lived. And it changed the way she died. She died courageously. Not because of any strength in herself, but because of the strength she knew was in Christ. She knew that because of Christ, she too would experience the resurrection. One of her favorite passages of Scripture that she repeated over and over several times as she laid there in her bed before her death was Psalm 4, 7 and 8. It says, You have put more joy in my heart Than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And that's what she did. She lied down. She laid down and slept. And died in faith. In Christ. What's the joy of your heart in this life? What is it that you look to for security? Christ will never fail you. Not in life, not in suffering and trials, not in sorrow or in pain. Christ will not fail you even in death. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in this time of response and in the days to follow, you would cause us to consider what it would mean to bring our life and our actions into alignment with the truths of your promises. What it would mean to to believe all that you have promised us and then to live in accordance with that. 
Help us to consider these things. In our care groups, in time that we spend together throughout the week, help us to consider. What are we spending our lives on? How are we wasting our lives on sin or bitterness or slothfulness? And I pray that you would help us to consider our deaths so that we might reflect on our lives, so that we might reflect on our witness to others. I pray that you would convict us by your Holy Spirit and by your word, that we would be assured of your grace in Christ and that it would move us in love towards you and towards others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.